Welcome back everyone to the Towards Data Science Podcast. Now I'll just go ahead and start this episode with a quick confession. I thought today's guest, Jillian Hadfield, was an expert in the philosophy of explainable AI and how it applies to regulations like GDPR or Canada's new proposed Bill C-11. That seemed like plenty of expertise for one person and it would have made for an interesting episode in its own right. But it turns out I was wrong. In addition to her background in law and economics at Stanford, and yes, her work on explainable and justifiable AI, Jillian is also knowledgeable about AI safety and AI alignment research. In fact, I can confidently say she's the only AI policy expert we've ever had on the podcast who's brought up Goodhart's law and the concrete problems in AI safety paper. Now, the result was a wide-ranging conversation about explainable AI, analogies between the law and AI alignment, and the future of AI regulation as well. And Jillian joined me to talk about all those things and more on this episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I overheard a talk that you gave at the Canada School of Public Service uh, a couple of months ago. And as I listened to it, I was like, okay, I, I have to talk to Jillian. I mean, this is going to be a, a great conversation about a really important set of topics. Um, before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we'll be discussing, talking about explainable AI and maybe the strengths and weaknesses of that whole concept, I'd love to get a sense for your, your background. So what brought you to the space of AI, especially given that you start off in, in economics, am I right? I did. Um, so I did a, a, a PhD in economics and a law degree as a joint degree back at Stanford, oh, decades and decades ago. Um, but I actually feel like the things I'm working on now are kind of coming back around to what motivated me and interested me in, uh, in that combination, which was, you know, using kind of formal modeling and formal methods, empirical work and so on, to understand the big questions. You know, what's the just way to organize societies? So I sort of feel like with some detours along the way and organizational economics and so on, I, I kind of feel like I'm back to where I, what motivated me in the first place. That's great. Yeah, it, it does seem to happen so much too. I mean, everything is so interconnected and I guess that's actually part of what makes this so complicated. To frame this conversation, I think it might be helpful to start with like, the, the big motivating events, the things that have gotten folks in policy, folks in, in privacy interested in AI most recently, I think maybe, and you might correct me on this, but I think the two biggest events here are a GDPR in Europe on the one hand, and then more recently Bill C-11 in Canada, at least specifically for us as we're both Canadians, uh, on the other. So I'd, I'd love to get a sense from you for what, what the big highlights are privacy-wise uh, of, of these two bits of, of legislation, and um, yeah, just your general thoughts on, on what you'd like to highlight there. So I think the GDPR, which came down 20, I think it became effective about 2018. It was preceded by some decisions out of the European Court of Justice about the right to be forgotten, which uh, you might remember. Um, and uh, it was sort of one of the big first comprehensive pieces of legislation starting to think about really the massive transformation that's coming from huge quantities of digital information and what's being done with all that, with all that data. Now it grew out of, you know, we have, we've had privacy legislation in lots of countries in the EU and bits and pieces in parts of, of Canada as well. Um, and of course, some in the U S the like regulation of medical data with the health information protection um, act there. So I think that was kind of the first, uh, the first big comprehensive 
uh, approaches. And, and everybody was thinking then about data. Everybody was thinking about, mm. gosh, you know, we've gone from data is the stuff in records and, you know, like big Excel sheets everywhere or digitized Excel sheets. Now we've got, you know, we're aware that data is being collected with everything we do, every click we make, <laughs> um, every song we listen to, um, all of that is generating massive quantities of, of data. So I think this was the first, the, you know, big steps towards, oh, what are we gonna do about this big transformation of societies in terms of data? And the privacy-related measures, I guess, or, or the, the, the talk about privacy in the context of GDPR and C11, they both included some, some talk about sort of explanation, rights to explanation, um, inviting, I mean, like, I guess this is one point of ambiguity is, do we really have a definition of what explanation means in that context? Like, what are some of your thoughts on that? Because I know you've done a lot of research in, in that area, a lot of thinking right. there. Yeah, sure. So, so the big the big messages of GDPR and Bill C eleven. So GDPR is in effect. Bill C eleven is still uh, just proposed legislation in Canada. Um, like I say, they're they're primarily focused on on privacy, which are concepts we've had around for a long time, constitutional concepts, and they focused on the idea of hey, people should have a right to control over their data or a right to decide when it's used and. But one of the ways in which all that data is being used, and of course, really what's driving the production of all that data is that people are building machine learning systems on that data. And that's why it's so valuable because it's being used to train machine learning systems that are then producing automated decision processes that are deciding things like, you know, what you're seeing in your newsfeed or people are using them to sift through uh, job applications or credit loan applications where we're starting to see them, you know, governments start to explore how to use it. So then we started to say, oh, there's this other thing around data that maybe we're worried about, which is how it's being used, not just how it's being collected and processed and held. What do you know about me? But how are you using that to make decisions that might affect me? And so what we see, saw in the GDPR was um, one of the provisions in there says that people have a right to an explanation of how a decision that was made using all that data, using an automated process, a right to an explanation of how that decision was reached. And Bill C-11 in Canada also includes something similar. They're not the same in all the details and it's a little bit of an overstatement with the GDPR to say you have a right to an explanation about any decision, it's a little narrower than that. But it introduced this idea of, of, oh, we need explainable AI. We need AI that's making decisions we can understand and, and, and get an account of. That actually connected up with what was starting to emerge in the computer science world from, actually some of it was coming out of, of uh, uh, military, context mm. in the in the US, um, people who were starting to say, if we're going to design and use these systems, I think we need to understand how they how they work. Um, so there's a lot of things that people mean by explainable AI or the right to an explanation. And there's it's really important to kind of separate out those um, those differences. Yeah, because I imagine when you talk about a, like a defense military technical application of AI and you say like, okay, explain, maybe explain 
this drone's decision to pull the trigger and, and shoot this person. There's like there's one level of explanation that comes from that. Well, okay, it it happened because you know neuron number 175 fired and it fired because these other neurons fired and so on, which is a very kind of reductive explanation. But then there's another level that's sort of more practical and says, oh well, it fired because this person had these features that we correlated with the appearance of some member of the Taliban or something, and so we pulled the trigger. And then an even higher level still is, is like, well, it fired because the, you know, the, the, the private who was piloting the drone uh, gave license to the algorithm to make this decision. It seems like there are all these different layers of, of explanation. How, how do you think about which layer applies, and how do you think governments are thinking about that in the context of this legislation? Yeah, so it's really important to, to, to really focus on the idea that there's both different layers and different purposes for explanation. And the, mm. it's the purpose you want to put the explanation to that really sh we should be thinking about when we're saying, well, what do we mean by an explanation? Now, maybe it helps to have a little bit of background here for any listeners who don't kind of know all the details of machine learning and why is this a challenge? Um, but you know, just as a just to get everybody up on the same page here, the challenge here is that our machine learning models are increasingly massive, um, and they consist of you know thousands, millions. In the case of big language models, billions of parameters, and it's really not so. They get this gets referred to as you know, it's the black box problem. It's really not very easy to say well. Why did that? Why did the model put the label of a cat on that image? Uh, or why did why did it score that particular application for credit uh, low? To understand how did the model work? If you had a really simple mathematical model, you could tell, right? You just had like five variables in it. You said, well, there's the coefficient on on age. <laughs> That's you know, we we can tell exactly why it behaved that way. Um, so the first type of explanation people are talking about, and this is the one that computer scientists are thinking about and say, you know, DARPA, when they started talking about explainable AI, um, they're talking about the causal account. How, how did the math transform that input into mm -hmm. this output? And that's a very challenging thing to do when you've got these big, big complex models. But it's the kind of thing you'd want to know in order to say, okay, why does it make mistakes? Uh, maybe you'll learn that, you know, oh, the reason it labeled that picture a, you know, there's an example that gets talked about of the, you know, people who trained a model to tell the difference between pictures of huskies and wolves. Um, I don't know anybody on talking about. Yes, exactly. You gave away the punchline there. That, oh, that sorry. <laughs> Right. That's right. So train a model to tell the difference between, between huskies and wolves. Uh, you get great accuracy on your test set. And, and then you go and you look for an explanation of how it, why it made a mistake in one case and discover actually you trained a model to recognize snow because all your pictures of wolves were on snow and all the pictures of dogs were on grass or dirt or rock or something. Um, so explanations like that that help you understand how does your how is your system producing can help you make up a safer system, can help you reduce errors, can give you more you know a more robust system that when you send it out into the real world, it's actually behaving the way you expect it to. So there's that kind of explanation, and it's uh, quite important. But if we go back to the GDPR and it, and think about automated decision making, 
when they say you citizen, resident, data owner have a right to an explanation about how your data was used to reach an automated decision, most of those people are not at all interested in the causal story of, you know, what neurons fired or, um, you know, what weight was attached to what feature. Um, they, I, I think what they want is what I call a justification. And I actually advocate for us to start using that term that really the GDPR should say, you have a right to a justification of a decision made using, um, using, de- using an automated decision process. Because what, what that person is looking for is like what our legal systems give us. The right to say, hey, you didn't give me a loan or you denied me that job. And I, don't, I think you violated the rules when you did that. You didn't look at my application carefully. You didn't take into account the material I sent you. Uh, you discriminated against me um, on a prohibited ground. That's really what we mean, I think, when, when, when you see this impulse from the European Parliament to say, oh, we need mm. explanations. It's, you know, people have a right to uh, be given an account of why the decision made by the machine is acceptable, given all the rules we have about and the standards and norms we have around how we make decisions. And it's part of that distinction again, I mean, I'm probably wrong with this, but it feels like part of the flavor here is an explanation seems like an affirmative statement about, you know, here were the things that mattered, here are the things that I factored in, whereas a justification seems like an assurance that certain things were not factored in or certain processes were not violated. Is is that like, is that part of the, the distinction between the two or? Um... It certainly, it could be because a lot of our rules and rights are about things like you know, things that you can't do, like you can't take my race or gender into account when you're deciding on whether I'm a good candidate for the job. Um, some of them you might say, and, and some of them might be, well, you were supposed to do this and you didn't. So, you know, if, um, uh, you know, you might say, well, there's, there's kind of an implied right. We don't have this expressed in many places, but there's an implied right that if I apply for a job, uh, you're going to review the materials I sent you. Now, some, some employers will always make it clear. We reserve the right not to look at your application at all. Like we liked the first one we saw and we stopped looking at that point. But suppose you're in an environment where it was thought, no, it's appropriate. Or maybe you're up for a promotion. Mm-hmm. That's more, a more likely context where you'd say, hey, you had to actually look at my record of work to decide if I was entitled to this promotion. So we might there say, hey, the thing you, you were supposed to do is look at, look at my application and you didn't do that. You, you didn't treat me, you didn't, you know, you didn't good, in good faith evaluate my, my, uh, my candidacy. But I, but I think the more fundamental difference here is in the first instance, when we're talking about that real explainable AI, the way computer scientists are understanding that, machine learning engineers are understanding that, that's really how is the network operating? What does, what's happening inside the model? Mm-hmm. That, that is a mathematical type question, a structural question, a, an architecture question. In the case of a justification for a decision, an automated decision, we may not really even care at all what's happening inside the model. Yeah. And we may not know what to do about it anyway. 
the justification may be kind of running in parallel, not really connected with what's happening inside the model, because it's, it's very much like when, when, a, when a judge makes a decision. You know, if a judge decides you're guilty, in our systems, uh, our, our legal systems, we uh, feel, uh, you know, trust and confidence to the extent that we do in our judges making those decisions because we have a system of accountability that requires them to give reasons for their decisions. And the reasons they give have to be consistent with the rules. It can't be, I denied you parole because I was grumpy and hungry for lunch. You know, it's gotta be, I denied you parole because of your behavior um, yeah. and our estimates of risk or something. Now, we don't actually know what's going on in the judge's head. Yeah. Well, I was, and I was, I was yeah. gonna, I was gonna ask because this is one of the things that, that often, uh, I think I, as more of a, you know, a technical person, uh, I reflexively have this sort of reaction where somebody says, well, we need explainable AI or we need whatever feature of AI, and it kind of makes me think, well, wait a minute, a bit of a double standard here. I mean, we don't have explainable humans. We we think we do. We often are presented with the appearance of an explanation, but there are all kinds of motives that underlie things. There's a lack of introspection. Like I don't I don't have full access to my own cognition, let alone that of other people. So for me to claim that I can even provide an explanation, um, I can't even peer inside. Yet with machine learning models, you can at least crack them open and say, hey, objectively, this is how that decision was made. So yeah, how, how do you how do you think about that that sort of distinction? Yeah, I think that's that's really important, and and it's a combination of right, like we we don't actually know what what neurons are firing in in a person's head when they're making a decision. Uh, we wouldn't really even know what to do with that information if we right. did. Um, but what we've done is we've created control mechanisms based on the obligation to provide reasons to share them publicly and then have them evaluated by a, you know, a disciplined community of kind of protectors of the consistency of our reasoning, which is the way I think about what lawyers do and, 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 uh, and judges, right? I train lawyers, I'm a law professor and I'm teaching them to, uh, to recognize, oh no, this, is, this would be a good use of that case as precedent or this would be a defensible interpretation of a term in a contract or a statute, or this is a defensible uh, or not defensible uh, reason uh, for reaching a, a legal conclusion. And that's observable stuff. And I say, it's kind of, it's governed by this system of reasoning and then these experts in, in reasoning as well as the public, right? Like you mm -hmm. also have to explain it to the public. So it's not only professionals and, and experts in a particular kind of reasoning. Um, and I think that's uh, something that we need to think a lot more about with respect to uh, machine learning uh, because we've, we've gone down this bit of this rabbit hole, oh, we need to explain to people how the model works and that will satisfy I'm saying, well, no, they won't understand none, none of very few. What's the meaning of, you know, uh, you know, this, this, this node in the third layer, uh, you yeah. know, this part of the network lit up. Yeah. Even among you know, technical specialists, there's debate why I had, um, 
uh, a prof at the Vector Institute on a couple of months ago, and he was talking about the controversy over what counts as an explanation, even within the technical community. So right. there's clearly no consensus. Yeah. Exactly, and and I say, but 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 that's but we're kind of you know we're 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 kind of looking up barking up the wrong tree there. What we should yeah. be doing is saying, can you justify the decision? We don't know exactly how it was reached, and so if so, when the judge who decides that you're you're not getting parole, let's suppose that the actual causal explanation is that judge was grumpy and mm -hmm. wanted lunch. Okay, that might be the causal explanation. But if the judge can justify that decision and say, well, yeah, I was grumpy and I wanted lunch, but I can go and look and I say, yeah, and here's the legitimate reasons why I exercise my discretion to not grant you uh, parole. Um, and, it, and that's how our regulation of the way that decision-making process works. And we're not really kind of focused on like, what's, you know, are you lined up completely with the causal explanation? It's, is it a justifiable decision? I was just going to draw the data science analogy here. So we have, you know, when you train neural networks, you have things that are called regularization terms that you add to your, your system, basically to like, in a way, minimize how wild the, um, the sensitivity and the, the variance of the outputs of the system can be. This kind of sounds like a regularization term on judicial behavior, where it's like, you can, you can be grumpy, your grumpiness can affect your behavior, but not beyond the point where it, it prevents you from being able to justify your explanation. So we're going to accept some amount of variance. Hard cases make bad law, so we're not going to crack that open and get too nitpicky within that boundary, but you need to be within that boundary. That's sort of the idea here. Yeah, that's a that's a nice analogy, um, uh, and and that's why thinking about it as a system, right, a control system that says what we're aiming for here is that our our decisions across a set of decisions that are being made across a whole institution that's making decisions, a whole process, are reasonably well aligned with the rules we set for how those are supposed to be made. But yeah, there's going to be noise. There's going to be variance. And, and one of the things that we actually include in our legal systems is we actually include lots of fuzziness. We have lots of places mm. where there's discretion and vagueness and, um, you know, I teach contract law and I find that, you know, my economist colleagues are often really kind of shocked when they see what real contracts look like because it, economists study contracts as equations. Right, you know, we're going to solve for the optimal uh, compensation schedule to secure incentives, and then you go look at at the way actual commercial contracts are written, and they're filled with words like, you know, well, we'll set person. a reasonable price, uh, commercially reasonable terms, we'll exercise good faith, we'll take best efforts. Um, you know, it's it's uh, there's a lot of fuzzies, and the reason for that is uh, that you know, we, we know that there's, it's actually really complex to make decisions. There's a ton of information to process and there's a ton of factors. So, so we kind of want our judges and our contracting parties and so on to have that room to take into account something that, you know, we didn't specify up front. You know, we didn't, we didn't put it into the model ahead of time or into the contract ahead of time. And then we put the bounds on it. We say, okay, and we'll give you that room to move around and that'll allow you to be actually a little bit better adaptive mm -hmm. to, to any particular situation. 
but we're going to have to cabin that to say, well, but you got to be able to explain it. You got to be able to fit it into our system of reasoning. You know, you may have decided it for a different reason, but you have to justify it. And that's with our existing reasons. And, and, and that's this, you know, um, Really, you know, it's, it's organic, it's vital, it's a, it's a system for moving a system. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I think a lot of these things, you want to think about them from that systemic point of view. Yeah, and, and to your point about the sort of um, aesthetic preferences of economists and, and quants who look at this and go like, oh, but it's not perfect, you can't put it in an equation. It's, uh, it's also maybe ironically, like there's an economic principle behind this called Goodhart's Law that we talk about in the context of AI safety on the podcast, where right the moment that you, that you define a measure and, and make it a target for optimization, it ceases to be a good measure for the thing you're trying to optimize. And like the canonical example for this is maybe the stock market. You know, in the 1900s, uh, the stock market was a great indicator of how the broader American economy was doing. You know, get a sense for how the average person is doing, look at the stock market. Today, things get really decoupled because people find ways to hack it. Like you have this well-defined metric, people are intelligent enough and systems of people are intelligent enough to find clever ways to kind of get around it. And the moment you define a concrete boundary, people will figure out how to hack it. And so contracts and, and definitions of privacy seem to follow in kind of the same, the same category in that sense. Is, is that part of this from, from your perspective, like that flexibility to make sure that, yes. okay. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. So, so um, we're, we're doing a bit of a pivot here, but it, from the explanation justification stories, but, but maybe it's a good direction. So the economics that I, was doing what I, you know, was, was back when I did my PhD, the area I've focused on is, is sort of the work on a theory of incomplete contracts. Mm -hmm. And this was a recognition that came about for uh, economists talking to, you know, we had law people starting to connect up with, uh, with people in economics. I, as I mentioned, I did that as a joint degree at Stanford. Oh, sigh in the eighties. Um, and uh, sort of the recognition was just coming around that, oh, you know, we have these theories of what we call complete contingent contracts, you know, basically put into the contract every variable that's going to make a difference mm. for outputs. And then you can, and, and you can easily solve mathematically that you then want to, you know, condition on everything that affects the, 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 the output, um, the, the, that metric you're talking about that you're going to compensate on. So you get these, so, so we had these mechanism design papers and so on that had these very complicated contractual structures. And as I mentioned, we then go look and see that they're quite vague, but one of the big insights there was contracts are always incomplete. Mm. We never, ever anticipate everything that's going to happen, every possible condition, every contingency. And in fact, there's lots of reasons why it may not make sense to do that. Maybe too expensive. We have strategic uh, obstacles to doing that. It may require me to reveal private information to you that I don't want to reveal to you in negotiations. So, so we started to recognize that contracts were necessarily and inevitably incomplete. So we had to start analyzing the problem. Okay, what's the optimal incomplete contract? What's the best way to design an incomplete contract? Oh, cool to deal with the fact that you're never gonna anticipate everything. So um, my, my co-author and also son, uh, Dylan Hadfield-Manel, who uh, just started it as a assistant. We've had him on the podcast. I had All no right. idea. You had no idea, there you go. So, so we have a paper, uh, Incomplete Contract and AI Alignment. 
um, which basically says, look, the incomplete contracting problem lines up with your misspecification, your alignment yeah. problem in, in AI. And, you know, you have to kind of make that same transition from saying, oh, we will fix our misspecification problem by getting better at specification. We will get everything in there. And it's like, no, you need to accept you will never get everything in there. So what's your best design for the incompleteness, right? So what is your best design for the fact you're never gonna get everything in there? And the reason is we, it's, it's a complex world. It's a dynamic world. The whole point of the world is we keep inventing new things and new relationships and yeah. new responses and, and shocks happen and wild things happen. And, and we, it's constantly dynamic. So you should just, shouldn't even start with the idea that we'll solve this problem by nailing down everything. It's actually functional that, that we've got all that ambiguity in there because we don't want to lock ourselves in. You do not want to live in the world where you could say, look, I want to be able to look up the rule and know exactly what I'm supposed to do. You actually don't want to live in that world. Yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm sort of chuckling to myself that you've got to be the first uh, economist we've had on the podcast who's made reference to AI alignment research. So, so this is definitely- well, There one, we go. One for the bingo card, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, no, and and uh, Dylan, I had no idea you were related to Dylan. That's fascinating. And it kind of opens up a whole different range of interactions between these two fields. Um, so, so you mentioned AI alignment. I guess that's where the, the Goodhart slot piece comes in. Yes. Okay, interesting. And so what were some of the, the principles that, uh, or were you able to identify any principles that you could use to kind of shore up these contracts, make them as robust as possible, given that, you know, you're never going to get to that, that point of... Well, so there's one really... Uh, so here, here, so I know the, so in the, in the um, AI world, lots of discussion about Goodhart's Law, which uh, I'm an economist, heard about it, but I sort of think of it as a macroeconomic concept. It was about like what instruments should the government use to set monetary policy and, and so on. And the, the version that I want to think about is sort of like, you know, famous work uh, about the multitasking problem. Um, and uh, this is, um, this particular one is Paul Milgram, who's one of my advisors at, uh, at Stanford, also just won the Nobel Prize for uh, actually, it's auction work, but um, uh, uh, and uh, Bengt Holmstrom. Um, and this is the idea that if, and, and actually, it's really great. It's like, so, you know, think about, think about teachers. You have the things you'd like teachers to do uh, are you'd like your, their students to, you know, learn how to do arithmetic and measurable stuff, but you also would like them to learn how to do very hard to measure stuff like be creative or be good citizens or whatever. And what they show is that if you can, if you can't, if you can only measure, like your instinct might be, well, if you can measure the performance on the, the math tests, you should tie incentives to the uh, performance on the math test. But if you do that, you'll teach to the test. Right, the teachers are going to start saying, "Well, my income depends on the performance of my students on math tests, so I'm just going to spend all my time teaching them math, and I'm going to forget teaching them how to be creative thinkers or good citizens. I don't get compensated." Of course, our teachers don't do that because we actually have a whole set of norms that fill this in, which is another point that we make. So I think of that as the like one of the really key insights is just because you can measure it doesn't mean you should put it into your into your system. Doesn't mean that you should crank your incentives to that doesn't mean that you should um, 
train your system. So self-driving cars, right? Okay, you can measure speed, you can measure likelihood of, of crashing and leaving the lane. Yeah, much harder to measure how cooperative and are you being, is the car being with other yeah. drivers on the road? So, so the lesson of that is once you recognize you're going to be missing things, you don't want to crank down on all the things you can measure. So I think of that as the, it's, it's, so Goodhart's law says metrics won't become good metrics. This just says we have to think about what you can measure in light of what you can't measure and what your true overall objective is. It's, it's such an interesting point. And you even touched on, uh, on something that might be its own kind of can of worms, but the idea that the, the gap between Goodhart's law and good kind of implementations of policy is culture. And that, you know, to the extent that teachers do a good job, it's because there are these norms that like, it's not enough to just like max out the score on this test. You have to kind of broadly produce an enlightened student base because otherwise you're sort of not doing your job. Um, yeah. And I guess the same applies to other professions too, right? I mean, a police officer might fill a quota, but they might do it in a horrible way or so on. Yeah, one of, one of the key insights that, that Dylan and I sort of pull out in this paper now talk a lot about um, is, okay, so human contracts are always incomplete, but why is it still rational for us to enter into those contracts? So, you know, mm. I, I wanna hire a, a person to do a job, make it really simple. You'll understand why you choose this example in a minute. You want to get them to carry boxes from one side of the room to the other. Um, and, you know, what you can do is you can pay them per box, right? That's measurable. You can do that. But stuff might happen, right? The, the expensive vase might appear in the middle of the, of the room or the cat might come in or, you know, somebody might need um, help because they, they have a heart attack in, the, in another, a corner of, of the workspace. And those things are not included in the, you can't include all those things in the contract because it's not worth it. You can't think about them all, et cetera. You're not gonna have those in the contract. But we live in an environment of a whole bunch of rich institutional infrastructure, norms and laws and so on that basically fill in the gaps. Mm. They fill in the gaps in the incomplete contract. So in fact, my contract consists of the express stuff that we filled in, or even the implied from what we talked about, but then it has all these, this, the environment, right? The environment fills in all that contract so that, you know, the, if the employee sees a, you know, an expensive vase appear in the room, uh, employee's gonna think twice before just plowing through it and say, well, the employer didn't say anything about whether I should, you yeah. know, protect the vase, because, you know, person to say, hmm, I live in an environment where if you go around causing property damage to other people's stuff, you know, people don't like you, they don't hire you, they maybe sue you, they withhold your wages, and everybody says that's okay, and the court will enforce it, and so on. So you have that way of filling in that. Now, you might recognize the example from concrete problems in AI safety, I was going to say, yeah, this is, this is really getting cool. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's why we chose the example to say like, oh, so here's our problem when it's a robot that mm -hmm. we have trained to carry the boxes and we thought, oh, what we want, you know, we want, what do we try to accomplish with this little robot we're training? Our objective is carry boxes to the other side of the room. 
we didn't think about vases appearing once that robot was deployed out there in the world. And, uh, uh, and then oops, right? So that's, you know, that's what this, uh, this group of authors identifies as, you know, here, here's a safety problem in AI, we trained for this, but oops, we didn't think about this other thing. And we say, yep, you're never gonna think about everything. So what should you do? So we say, look, part of what you have to recognize is the only way we solve that problem for humans is with a bunch of external infrastructure. So how do we do that with AI systems? How do we do that for robots? So that a robot would be thinking, hmm, never seen a vase before, wasn't in the training data. What do I think humans would think? Yeah. And, and so now we're back to like my law side and right, the normative infrastructure in which all of our interactions are embedded. How are we gonna build our systems and our robots to reference that normative infrastructure, to draw on it, to say, oh, I, I, it's, not, I, it's, it's not just carrying boxes. I'm embedded in this thing. There's a lot of other things that humans care about. I better go take the look. Human is gonna think hypothetically, imaginatively, what would they think if? So how do we train our robots to say, what would they think if I did that thing I've never thought of or, or, or uh, been trained about before? It's actually really interesting because it, it makes me think differently now back to my, my interview with Dylan because seeing this through some of your insights shining through there, some of his insights shining through here, it's just fascinating. Um, one thing this does make me think of though is how far this, this uh, rabbit hole might go on, on the, like the normative infrastructure side. Because at a certain point, I guess you hit bedrock where you, re, you, you get to the frontier of situations that the law and the normative infrastructure haven't yet accounted for. Um, I'm thinking of things like uh, cutting edge technologies, maybe crypto automation of certain things that just like, we've never thought about how they could be automated and now we have to come up with laws to deal with them. Um, at a certain point, this, this kind of leaves us, I guess, hitting bedrock and, and wondering like, how do, we, how do we build this whole thing from scratch with very little context? And I imagine that's kind of what the GDPR thing, that, that's maybe the tie in back there too, right? Um. So say, say more about that, to the because I think there is a tie back to GDPR, but say more about how you're seeing that. Well, I guess what I'm seeing is GDPR and Bill C-11 speak to us trying to kind of push the frontier of this normative infrastructure. Yeah. There's, there's no precedent, really. There, it's not like there's a yeah set of thinking on it yet. Right, right. Good, good, good. Okay, great. So, so, so what we just got to was um, stop trying to, stop thinking you're going to solve the alignment problem or the... AI safety problem or responsible AI problem, you know, by 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 tweaking your your algorithms, your data sets, you know, should do all those things. Absolutely, right? We should be we should do it. But we're not going to get to to solution on that. We need to build that infrastructure around it and our systems that say, oh, I need to reach out there and 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 recognize this is an embedded problem. So I think you're exactly right. Then that's a nice connection to. So when GDPR comes in and says, hey, a person's, people are gonna be affected by these automated decisions. And, and you know what? Instinctively, we say you're entitled to an explanation for that. What they mean is you're entitled to a justification for that. And, and, and what do all the people who drafted that, so who drafted that stuff? A whole bunch of lawyers is for one thing. And, and what they're all thinking is when humans make decisions, like mm -hmm. when we delegate to somebody else to make decisions about who gets the job or who gets the benefits or you know, who gets the contract, we have a whole bunch of infrastructure around that legal process 
that says you have a right to go have somebody say, yeah, I, I was justified. Uh, you, you know, uh, I was justified in the decision. So you have that infrastructure to reach around to. So I think that's a really nice way to think about. And also now, you, now you've got me thinking about a really important reason why uh, machine learning engineers need to understand the difference between explanation and justification is that, you know, you need to build your systems so that they are reaching out into that human structure of right. justification and the processes of that. Um, uh, and I, sh I, I should say that the, the, you know, originally thinking about this, it was, uh, it was Dylan um, and, and we're working on this, this stuff together as, as well. But uh, yeah, he, he grew up in a household of economists and lawyers and I, I can tell. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think that's exactly right. So, so that's a really nice way to think about, I don't think anybody thought about this when they were writing up the GDPR, they were just instinctively saying, Hey, in our complex societies, when people make decisions that affect you, you have a right to right. Uh, justification. And uh, so they're just instinctively saying, well, of course, you're going to have to have that from the machine as well. Um, so that then says, okay, now that's your, that's your design challenge. That's your engineering challenge. What does it mean to do that? And here's what it doesn't mean. Figure yeah. out like what's happening in the third layer of uh, the network or, you know, where the, the map lights up um, when it's shown this image versus that one. All that could be useful in coming up with, with reasons, but. Yeah, that, that use of language or the, the kind of language disconnect is, is such an interesting theme, especially when it comes from, you know, you've got people used to using the word explanation in legal context and then other people in the technical context and they just don't, they don't come eye to eye. Right. One thing this does make me think of, especially because you, you mentioned how GDPR was the product of, of lawyer, lawyerly work, let's say. Um, this seems to speak to the challenge of getting technical people involved and engaged in that process. Uh, I imagine, uh, you know, I know speaking to policy folks in government, recruitment is a huge problem. Just getting people who even know data analytics or data science, let alone AI alignment, which is like the niche of the niche, sort of super technical stuff. Um, is this something that you that you feel like? I mean, you have obviously special access through Dylan to this kind of talent, but is this something you feel as a as a kind of vulnerability or, or weak spot in the the whole legislating process around privacy and AI that sort of thing right now? Yeah, so I I think the um, the challenge we're facing there is uh, so so first of all there is as you know as you've noted there's there's a it, there's a shortage of of uh, people with this kind of training to, to really understand the way AI and machine learning work and then to be able to build it. I mean, I understand how it works, but I can't build it, right? I, I'm, I'm not in that, in that category. Um, and so, yeah, number one, you have governments and uh, places that are, are facing a challenge just hiring like that and can't compete on salary, right? There's right. the economics for you, right? You know, you just, just you can't, you have to have another reason to go work for the government uh, when, when there's a, a ton of big tech and startup tech that, that would love to hire you at much higher rates. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a challenge, but <clears throat> the, I, there's, two, there's two things I think I, 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 I wanna say about that. One is you don't have to be able to build machine learning to understand it well enough to think through what mm -hmm. do we need to do to regulate it, 
What do we need to do to make sure it's safe and good and not screwing up our societies? Again, I'll come back to me. I mean, I'm, I'm an economist, so I have technical skills. I you know, do a lot of math, um, but I don't program. Um, but I certainly understand the way machine learning works. Um, and when I, I see, I just did a, we're doing a series of lectures for the Canada School of Public Service and just uh, uh, recorded one of the, the first ones there about what is AI. And, and I do this when I teach to law student, students, I do this when I teach to uh, business school students. And, and I really think it's a very important thing for people who are not uh, computer scientists. Here are the fundamentals of how this works. You should understand the basics and like one of the key things and why we're facing challenges here, but what's the difference between conventional programming where there was mm. you know, a human being who said, if X, then Y, and yeah. wrote, basically wrote down all the rules for how the even complex software would work, you know, autopilots and airplanes and so on, to machine learning, which is, here's a bunch of data, here's what we'd like you to figure out how to do, you figure out if X, then Y. And it's, it's that shift. And that's, that's something that, that I think tons of people should understand and then understand, okay, so why does that create different kinds of risks? What is the transparency problem? And so I think we don't need to necessarily have a whole bunch more um, machine learning engineers in government, but we need a, you know, a step jump in the sophistication of understanding. So, and I think that's perfectly accessible to anybody, you know, smart enough to be one of our civil servants. So I think that's, that's point number one. Point number two is I don't think we're going to be able to solve our regulation problems with the conventional approaches to regulation, mm. which is people, you know, civil servants and lawyers and, and members of the public sitting around and writing down a bunch of rules on paper. Right. It's uh, think about our, the challenges around our social media platforms right now. Right. You know, we're not going to be able to sit around and write, oh, okay, so do this and do this and don't do that and don't do yeah. that. Uh, it's going to be outdated probably the moment you first right. write it down. Um, and uh, it's not going to be sophisticated. And for that, you need like really detailed information. It's not just that you need the expertise of being a machine learning engineer. We have no idea what's going on inside the the recommender systems that Facebook is building or, you know, the, 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 the systems in, inside Google for uh, ranking and, and, and ad selection and so on. We, so they're big, massive models. You know, I work with OpenAI, uh, GPT-3, <laughs> right? It, we, we don't know, it's massive. We don't know what's going on in there. And uh, we're not gonna be able to regulate in our conventional ways. But I think what we are going to need is um, we're going to need to create, we're going to need technologies. We're going to need AI to regulate, help regulate AI, right? We're going to need those kinds of tech. We're going to need technology. We need, we need to sort of drive the production of technology that can track, probe, control, uh, solicit justifications from or whatever uh, AI systems. So, so one of the things that I've been 
advocating for is something I call regulatory markets, where we say, let's get our governments making decisions like how safe does a self-driving car have to be? Like, what are the acceptable accident rates and, you know, so on. But we got to drive a whole sector in the economy of, you know, smart young people with startups who are saying, oh, I can build the technology that will get you that. Um, I, can, I can build that. So we've, we've actually got a little bit of this happening already with companies that are building machine learning systems to make sure that other machine learning systems aren't discriminating on the basis of race, for example, or uh, automating with uh, you know, smart tools, uh, removal of private information, going back to GDPR and privacy. Right. Um, and so one of the things I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and trying to figure out how to build and talking to governments about is, okay, stop thinking that what you're gonna do is write some complex legislation that will tell social media platforms what they do. Start thinking about how you can drive the production of the technologies that will track. Um, start thinking about how you're going to give access to yeah. that, those innovators to what they need to know. So, um, so yeah, your, your original question was around, okay, governments can't hire enough machine learning engineers saying, yep, that's right. So uh, how much is that a problem and what is the better solution anyway? I couldn't possibly agree more. That, that sounds like a, a lot of really sensible stuff and getting the private sector involved in the right ways it seems like pretty well the only the only path ahead for this is just fascinating. I, uh, I what a, what a nice surprise! Sort of halfway through realizing that you're an expert on like uh, the whole other half of what we talk about on the podcast. <laughs> this was not expected Great. and absolutely fantastic. Wonderful, I, wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciated all your your insights here, uh, Jillian. And uh, is there anywhere people can go, like specifically that you'd recommend to learn more about your work, your research? Uh, sure. So so I am uh, uh, so I'm a professor of law and of uh, strategic management at the University of Toronto. Uh, but I also direct this new institute called the Schwartz-Riesmann Institute for Technology and Society. And uh, uh, that's uh, uh, easily found. Oh, I guess you have to spell Schwartz-Riesmann. So I think we I our website is srinstitute.utoronto.ca. Uh, oh, nice. uh, um, so that's where you can find out about the kinds of projects work we're working on um, and, and links to, um, uh, the videos and blog posts and so on of uh, various uh, of these kinds of pieces of work. And then I also have a, a web page that has, has my own work um, on it, including like the paper I just mentioned, the Ingleblade contracts and AI alignment one, uh, hopefully soon one, the justification paper, which okay. is a, really got some really cool stuff in, in there coming out. Um, I do a collaboration with uh, DeepMind and we have some, uh, we have some some great work with multi-agent systems. So, uh, fantastic. Yes. Well, we'll yeah. be sure to link to all that stuff too in the blog post that'll come with the podcast. So, folks, if you're listening or, or watching or whatever you're doing, uh, do check that out as well because I, I suspect we'll have a lot of links to share on this one. So. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> Thanks so good, much, Jillian. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Very great. Thanks.